teaching text today is a reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He, took, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The word of the Lord. Morning. Prophet, priest, and king. You, you, if you've been around church, you may have heard Jesus described this way before. Um, 
It's uh, the threefold offices that uh, theologians and scholars and the older catechisms tell us that uh, Jesus embodied. Uh, This may have very little meaning to you at at this point, but just to explain it a little bit, uh, he is a prophet, Christ is a prophet in the Hebrew tradition, who does what prophets do, shares with us the heart of God in connection to the present reality of our time. What does the heart of God have to say about the realities that we are experiencing now? Sometimes Jesus does this in in flowing poetic teaching, like the prophet Isaiah, uh, maybe the most prolific writer in the Hebrew prophetic tradition. Sometimes he does it in public demonstration, like the prophet Ezekiel, where he does a a, a physical demonstration to show what the kingdom of God is is like. Um, The prophet is always concerned with what has God said. The prophet always wants to know what the heart of God is and are we living in in his ways. He's also a priest. What does a priest do? Well, he cares for souls. Um, he, he makes sure that there is a way open to God, uh, has concern for the people of God and the house of God, is one who offers forgiveness, makes sacrifice, mediates the presence of God. Jesus is a priest. Uh, and he's also a king. And, and maybe we're like pretty comfortable with him as a prophet, like tell me what's going on, and with a priest, like forgive me and make the way open, but maybe less receptive in the world of presidents to Jesus being a king. Uh, But nevertheless, that's uh, what he claims to be and reveals himself as a king who rules and administers a kingdom that is coming in the world. And we get glimpses of it now. We are even as the church an outpost of that kingdom. But one day it's going to come even more fully that he is a king worthy of palms being laid down, worthy of praise, worthy of directing our lives uh, as we fully surrender to his love and to his leadership. Now, if you <laughs> are not sure what you think about Jesus, then you certainly might not care about these descriptions of him. Or you might not be, uh, even if you're even mildly curious about his claims, you might not be ready to accept him as these things. But is at least helpful to know that this is how he is revealing himself. And so if you're like, in the pre-faith stage of your life and you're here curious about, you know, what these people are doing in the middle school on Sunday instead of having brunch. Um, and, and this may not have very much appeal to you initially, but if you're a follower of Jesus already, it's really helpful and important for us to know to see the fullness of Jesus' life and ministry through these lens. These, these are who Jesus is in his ministry, is in the world, and is to us. We need him in each of these three ways and in particular to be a prophet to us, to be a priest to us, to be a king to us. And then maybe even more astonishingly, he is making you into that. That's part of God's vision for your life, is if we're becoming like Jesus, this mysterious thing that the Christianity claims is that if you come into relationship, into union with Christ, you're going to be in this process of becoming Christ-like And somehow, very mysteriously, you're not going to lose the uniqueness of your identity. Actually, that will be sharpened and more clear and more in focus. C.S. Lewis says, when we become like Christ together, we don't all become more more and more the same, but we become more and more truly who we we were created and meant to be. And so there is a great, great, beautiful diversity and variety in Christ-likeness. But Christianity is making this profound claim that if you come into relationship with God, your character is on this process of being transformed to be like Jesus. And if that's true, he's making you a prophet, priest, and king. So, 
That may sound just like technical theology to you or a boring beginning to the sermon, whatever. Um, But you need to to have those, those titles, those offices in your mind when you look at what are three pretty bizarre scenes um, as Jesus begins Holy Week and as he enters Jerusalem. Considering the fact that by, by Friday, this man Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and horrifically publicly executed it's so violently that it was like he wasn't recognizable um, as himself anymore. It's, it's a bit strange that he seems to know that, and yet he comes into Jerusalem in a, in a, in a somewhat bizarre way. We have three strange scenes in, in the teaching text that was just read to us. Some of those scenes were obscured by a shadow. The head of the person reading the text. Did you notice that? <laughs> those parts of the text you have to receive by faith. All right, sorry. So what are the scenes? Well, Jesus has arranged uh, for his disciples to steal... A horse. Or borrow a colt unridden. Um, And he rides on it, receiving praise. Palm branches are laid down. These are the scenes I find amusing, right? I mean, my job is uh, on some level to to study the scripture. I also like to do that. um, And so that that mixes well. But there's amusing scenes in the New Testament that I wish I could be there for. And this is one of them. Like, if you're the disciples, are you a bit nervous? You're just going to walk up and untie this colt and take it away. And hope that no one sees you. And I, I don't know how Jesus did it. How did he know that, that he sent like a Holy Spirit messenger? Or the person just sensed or they had it in a dream? Or it was like Obi-Wan in the Jedi. They're like, he's stealing. It's like, you'll be totally fine with us taking this unridden colt. And he's like, I'm strangely fine with you taking that unridden colt. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how it went down, but I wish I, I wish I could have seen it. Like... All of Jesus' teaching, and then the disciples are like, we got to steal this horse. I can't believe he sent us to do this. Whatever it was, Jesus parades into the city. Um, and for a man who, for so much of his ministry, when people would try to draw attention to his miracles, he deflects that attention or tells people not to tell anyone who he is and makes demons who seemingly are identifying him be quiet. It seems a bit strange that Jesus would, at this point, receive the recognition, receive the praise um, and, and ride into the city in this, in this unexpected way. But it is, I, I can tell you, full of prophetic meaning. The second scene is uh, Jesus goes into the temple and also pretty uncharacteristic of what we've gotten used to with Jesus um, is, is he goes into the temple and he doesn't like what he finds there and he becomes so deliberately angry that he flips over tables. This is not the Jesus who's carrying lambs and welcoming children. He has a whip and he's flipping over tables and it's intimidating. One of the accounts says that Jesus made the whip. He knew how to make a whip of cords. Just a little note for your devotionals. (laughs) And then maybe the most bizarre detail in the story, actually it it starts before the temple and then is resolved after the temple story, is that Jesus gets mad at a tree and curses it. (laughs) And I don't know if you're a visitor what picture of Jesus you came in here with, but he's apparently cursing trees to their death. And it is final. So, he, he's hungry, he comes upon a tree that looks like it it's, has leaves, and so it should have fruit, it doesn't, and then he says this declaration, let no one eat from this tree again, it will never bear fruit. Bow your heads and close your eyes, that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> We're just going to try to see a few things about each of these scenes, and I think what we'll see coming out in each of them, um, some of those 
claims about the identity of who Jesus is and how he ministers his presence and love to us as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. So scene one, riding in to Jerusalem. I know we just heard it, but just, um, just so the details are in your head, I'm not going to read all of it, but the disciples have come back with this stolen horse. Um, we'll say borrowed colt. That's what the text says. The disciples have come back with the borrowed colt, and now Jesus is being praised by some, by, by some group of people. Uh, we're not sure how large the crowd is, but here's the scene. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus riding a, a donkey. Got some cloths on it. A few peasants of an unknown quantity, an unknown size of people, uh, are, are there praising him, asking for uh, his, his help. It's a fairly humble scene. Uh, it was common in this, in this time in the first century for a king or a ruler to enter a city in a grand profession. Uh, scholars have noted the irony of what Jesus is doing here, uh, especially in the fact that Israel was dominated by the Roman Empire at this point. And Pontius Pilate was the uh, sort of regional leader of, of, of sort of Roman authority in, in this time. And I, I guarantee you Pontius Pilate would have been in the city for Passover. Jesus and his disciples are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Pontius Pilate would have pr- himself paraded into the city. We've talked about this on other um, Palm Sundays. But uh, <clears throat> what is Passover? This meal that Jesus and his disciples are coming to observe and celebrate is a reminder of when there was an oppressive foreign empire that held captive the people of God and God set them free by his might and power. And the Passover is a remembrance of their being free from a a powerful, being set free from a powerful empire. So if you're going to have sort of like seditious thoughts stirred up or the possibility of rebellion being stirred up, it, it more than likely will happen when everyone's gathered in the city together to remember the time that God delivered us. And and Empire after empire has found out how incredibly difficult it is to keep control of this city, Jerusalem, and to keep control of this region. Very quickly, uprisings are happening over and over again. So in order to make sure that didn't happen, especially on Passover... Pontius Pilate, who normally kept his quarters at Caesarea by by the sea, because if you have a palace by the sea, that's where you should stay. And he comes parading into Jerusalem with a a powerful demonstration of Roman military might. So as you're celebrating Passover with your family, you still remember who's in charge. Let's not get any ideas about God sweeping in and rescue again. That was an older time, and here we are, Rome. So... Pilate would have gotten a legion of soldiers and marched them into the city, and you would have heard them coming from miles away, shaking the ground. Uh, A scholar's book on the last week of Jesus depicts the imagery this way. Imagine the imperial procession's arrival in the city. A visual panoply of imperial power, cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, sounds, the marching of feet, the cracking of leather, The creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlooker, some curious, some awed, some resentful. Now that's a triumphal entry. We're in charge, and we intend to stay that way. A powerful demonstration of the might of the empire. Don't get any ideas. And so 
in a sense, when you, when you put it aside, alongside that contextual reality, Jesus' parade seems even a little bit more uh, absurd, uh, different, <laughs> absurdly different from the imperial procession. And the people who are crying out to him are aware of that other procession because they're crying, Hosanna. And Hosanna is a word that we, like, kind of like hallelujah, that we put in praise songs and sing or say enough that we maybe have let the meaning leak out of it. Hosanna literally means save us. It wasn't just, Jesus, you're awesome, be my friend. It was deliver us, rescue us. The most probably clear translation is, we beg you to deliver us. Because Pontius Pilate and Rome are running the show and taxing us exorbitantly. And all the promises that God made to Abraham and to Moses seem far off and delayed and never going to happen again. And so we see this tension over and over again with those who are following Jesus, that they want him, whatever else he's going to do, teach us some spiritual things, thank you very much, but get rid of Rome and establish our kingdom here. And they're debating, like, what will be my place in your cabinet? Will I sit at your right hand? Will I sit at your, in, your, in your left hand? The disciples wanted, the followers of Jesus wanted a military overthrow of, and they knew Jesus could do it. This guy walks on water. He makes bread feed lots of people from almost nothing. He's healing people. He's got the power. This is our guy. Hosanna. And yet, even in the imagery of Jesus' procession, his triumphal entry, he's saying, it's going to be different than you think. Jesus is actually fulfilling a centuries-old prophecies from Zechariah chapter 9 as he enters Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Righteous and victorious. Yes, I'm all about that. Lowly and riding on a donkey. Less impressive, Jesus. He's not riding a war horse. He's not accompanied by soldiers. He is a king, but he only has peasants crying out for him. If Pilate's procession was demonstrating the strength of violence and domination and, and political will and control, Jesus' procession is saying the kingdom of God is going to come in a different way. And why? Well, because if you do the military overthrow thing, you've got to do it again in like one or two generations. And so instead of establishing this cycle of violence of, of empire toppling empire by strength upon strength, Jesus is going to sow a seed in the world that's going to grow up into an entirely different kind of kingdom. He's instead of crushing the enemy, he's going to allow himself to be crushed by his enemies. He's going to allow himself to be executed by the empire. And, and as a matter of fact, he's going to take on, and this is his claim, take on the entire system of death at work in the world. Because he has this radical claim that that can only be defeated by actually by love. And then that's not just a cliche or something to write on Hallmark cards, but it's actually the nature of the universe. <laughs> that the only way to break the cycle is to absorb the cost and to offer love instead. So, Jesus is going to respond to their cries of Hosanna, but not in the way that anyone could imagine. He is showing he is a king, but he is a king of another kind of kingdom. All right, then scene two, uh, the cursing of the fig tree, which sort of bookends the temple scene, but we'll, we'll hit scene two, uh, the cursing of the fig tree next. So Jesus entered Jer Jerusalem, went into the temple court, so he goes in the night before. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he might have had immediately in his heart the flipping over the tables bit, but he says, too late for that, let's go rest. He goes out. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit, and when he reached it, he found nothing but 
but leaves because it was not the season for figs. You think Jesus cut the tree a break. It's not the season for figs. Oh, no. Oh, no. Jesus gets out his cursing stick. No, he has no cursing stick. That, I added that detail. Um, and then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Then he goes to the temple, blah, blah, blah. A little bit later, verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And you, I think Jesus is like, yeah, you remember the storm I calmed? This is a tree. I learned a little bit about fig trees this week because I knew nothing of them. Um, Really, I mean, I enjoy a, a fig from time to time, but I had nothing, you know, no, no real expert knowledge of how they grow or what's going on um, or what it means when it says in the text of detail it, the tree was in leaf. So before the fig tree would like have its proper figs um, p- producing the fruit of the, of the figs, it would have, it would, it, would, it would leaf first and then it would have these little nubs uh, that were the beginning of the signs that the fruit was coming and you could actually eat these little nubs, these fig nubs, um, and write that in your, and if you're taking notes, just write down, just fig nubs on, just come back to that later. Whenever you read it, you'll be like, what on earth were they talking about? Um, so Jesus sees that the tree is in leaf, but he goes and he doesn't find any of the fig nubs. So this means something. Actually, it means that the tree is not going to produce anymore, that it has a disease or that the tree is dying. And so Jesus' curse, essentially, he just declares the, the true reality of the tree's condition. And then it's miraculously revealed even by the next day. So there is some miraculous power here, but Jesus is declaring something that already is for for its true condition. (laughs) He is so like a prophet in the Hebrew tradition in this way, in this public demonstration. He says, there are things that appear to have life, but they are whitewashed tombs. (laughs) They look nice on the outside, but they are dead on the inside. This appears to be a fig tree and leaf, but there is no fruit. And he's, he's saying something profound. <laughs> he's saying, this thing is never going to bear fruit again. Now, I, I've read, right, Palm Sunday, Easter, Christmas. These are the hard sermon weeks. Because you say the same thing every, every year. You know your text. I've read this passage thousands of times. And I just always skip over the fig tree part. I'm like, that's weird. Jesus is so upset. Why? I don't know. Let's get to the temple. He's, I hope he's not flipping the tables over about the figs. Um, I just kind of skip, skip over it. This year, in that mysterious way that sometimes happens when you're reading the scriptures... That phrase, this tree will never bear fruit again, just leapt out to me. And I felt an impression from the Holy Spirit that, um, that after Jesus has done what he's come to do in this holy week, in this final week of his life, there are some things that are never going to bear fruit again. This is the end of the line for some things, some systems, some realities. Jesus is actually coming into Jerusalem to bear a curse himself. But he declares the true condition of of the reality of unfruitfulness in some of the systems that are at play. Well, how do we know that? One, he flips over the temple, but then he's also ending the temple. Religion as you know it will never bear fruit in the way you expect. This human pursuit of human beings going after God in, in their prescribed ways in ways that make them comfortable, that's, that's religion. That's you know, maybe contrasted by an actual relationship with God would be one way to say it. But the, the, the way of religion as you have known it is ending in this holy week. 
And the way of power and progress as you have known it, and violence and strength and domination, the end of that is also being signaled in this Holy Week. And the cry of Hosanna, we're coming to the end of, our, of ourselves. The, the true condition of our world is such that we need a Savior. And that's a humbling thing to take. But there, there's more than just Jesus is hungry and angry about not being able to find a snack. He's prophetically sin, signaling the end of some eras. <laughs> the end of religion as a human way to reach God is the, the beginning of the end of the lie that we can have peace through more violence. And it is an acknowledgement of the end of ourselves. So, like, that's very neat and tidy. Thank you for saying that. I felt personally convicted <laughs> um, that there's such a pro- profound temptation in our lives, in my life, to go back to places that God has said, I want you to move on from this, to go back and try to find life-giving fruit in those places again. To walk down streets that we've walked down before, to go to wells that we know are full of only gravel, to take up patterns of thought or patterns of behavior that we've been shown the end of, We've been shown the meaninglessness of them. We've, we've tasted and seen that they didn't bear fruit. And yet, my heart still is just like, well, maybe this time will be different. And we return to places that we know we're not going to find life. And I just sense God was saying to me and perhaps wanting to say to some of us, that the time for that has passed. The t- Holy Week marks an opportunity to say of those places in our life that maybe God has helped identify by His Holy Spirit in you over, this, over Lent or over this last season, that there are some things that it's okay for you just to leave behind. And I actually don't know exactly who that's specifically for in our church, but I felt impressed by the Holy Spirit to say there, there are some of us that we, we know this tree isn't bearing fruit anymore and we need to not look there anymore, and that's okay. And that can just be a marker in the path of maturity as we look back. But we don't have to try again to find life from a dead place. Jesus is is a prophet, and he's he's showing us the true heart of God. He's showing us not just the true heart of God, but how it relates to the true nature of things. And he's saying, listen, this season is over. And some of you, you, you have a thing in your mind right now that you know, like, man, that season just doesn't need to be over. I believe God actually, in the, in the, maybe in the prayer time at the end of our service, wants to, to give some freedom in those places. Um, so, I don't know. Ask him to show you. All right, scene three. Turning over the tables, right? On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus wasn't executed because he taught people to forgive and he carried lambs around and he was nice. He was executed because he said, this system is over. And you using it to manipulate and get power for yourself and oppress other people, that's over. I mean, this is Jesus, meek and mild, flipping over tables, having a whip of cords. I don't know what it means when he says he wouldn't allow people to carry merchandise through the temple courts except that he either commanded them to drop it or he knocked it out of their hands. It's an unexpected picture of Jesus. 
who's righteously angry. He, he's fulfilling a, 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 a prophecy from the Psalms. The zeal for my house has, has eaten me up. I'm like, I'm consumed with zeal for this place. This place, if it's going to be here, it must fulfill its real purpose. This is a place where people are, are, are meant to meet with God. So I want you just to imagine the scene. They've ascended the, the steps of the temple and there are series of courts. The, out, the outermost court, the first entryway, is called the Court of the Gentiles. This will be the place where every non-Jewish person could go. So there'll be Jewish and non-Jewish people there. This is the only place, though, that people from the nations can go. And in that place, there's all the, the, the merchandise for the, the rest of the temple is being sold in these outer courts. So you imagine just strings and strings, a, a bazaar, a, a flea market, and in South Carolina we call it a jockey lot. Familiar with that term, jockey lot? Jockey lot? My dad sold baseball cards there. It's a fantastic place, a carnival of, of smells and tastes and sights and sounds and wonderful people. All right. Just imagine the tables being flipped over at the jockey lot, someone from South Carolina. Imagine that. Wouldn't that be wild? All right. All right. This is the only place, however, where some people are able to meet with God. And instead what they're finding is a a wild environment, a loud environment, animals going all over. Josephus, a historian at the time, said that on Passover week, up to 2,000 lambs would be purchased and sacrificed uh, in the celebration celebration of Passover. And there were people that were being swindled in their, in their financial exchange rates, in their bartering system, whatever they were bringing, that they were being, the prices were extorting them. And they've come to worship God, and yet they're being taken advantage of. And Jesus is a priest. He says, there must be a way open to God. There must be an opportunity for these people to connect with God. Not just a select few people, but the nations. And so he cleanses the temple, but he's also about to end the temple. He's cleansing the temple because it's not producing fruit. It's, it's, it's not living up to its original intention to be a place where people could come encounter the presence of God. So in this moment, Jesus cleanses the outer courts of the temple and makes it again a place of prayer where people from any background, any color of skin, any nation could come and, and pray and, and expect to find God. But Jesus is also going to cleanse the innermost place of the temple. At the end of Holy Week, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Good Friday, the veil of the temple is torn. Now, as you went through the sections of the temple, there were certain parts that were reserved for Jewish people, and then reserved for Jewish men, and then reserved for the priest, and then reserved for only one priest, only one time a year, the Holy of Holies, the place where the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the place of the Shekinah glory of God, the place of God's presence. And it was so intimidating, and the priest had to go through an entire series of making sure he was in right standing before God. And there, were, there were, it's, it's tradition that they would tie a string to his foot in case he dropped dead in the presence of God and could be drug out of the temple. And this most innermost place that represented God's presence, Jesus is on the cross, and the veil of the temple is torn from top, rent into this foot thick, uh, over a foot thick, this cloth was torn into from the top. God saying, The final sacrifice has been given. Access to my presence is available. But not just so people can go into the temple because actually by just a few years after Jesus is is 
death and resurrection, the temple was destroyed and not, not rebuilt. Jesus is signaling the end of the temple era. As a matter of fact, in Jewish, in the Hebrew prophetic tradition, a fig was a fig tree was often utilized as a symbol for the spiritual life of Israel and specifically for the temple. And so when Jesus is cursing the fig tree, he's giving a symbol to his Jewish brothers and sisters that the time of the, uh, whether they got it or not, that the time of the temple was coming to an end. Why? Not so that people can, the veil's torn, now I can go into the temple. No, now the presence of God is going to fill and indwell our lives. We are going to become the temple. The final sacrifice has been offered at the end of Holy Week. The veil has been torn. We are going to become the temple. So, the message of the gospel of Jesus is that you are made for the most intimate kind of relationship that you can possibly fathom with God himself. That he would accomplish that relationship taking place by putting his actual spirit in your life. In order to make your life a holy place, even though all of us have brokenness and mistakes and failures and what the scripture calls sins, in order to make your life a place where the Holy Spirit could reside like it was the innermost part of the temple, Christ goes to the cross in this holy week. And he hangs on the cross. And it literally says in Colossians that all the record against us was put on him. Corinthians says, he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness. So everything that separates us from God was put on Jesus. Why? So that he could absorb the full cost, absorb that death himself, and then offer us life. Say, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're healed. I declare you holy even though you you are far from holy. And I'm going to bring those two realities together by my spirit in your life. And you become the temple. By acknowledging that Christ is a prophet, a priest, and a king, able to show the real heart of God, able to mediate the presence of God, able to direct your life because you've surrendered to him in love. He comes to Jerusalem not just to, not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow death and shame and separation. To call us away as a prophet from settling for our self-absorbed lives that stay in these small cages of curating our own appetites as they come out into the wide spaces of being known and being loved and being healed and being forgiven. He's a priest who insists that there must be a way for all who want to, to come to God, and so he pays the full cost. I'm going to pray for us, give you a few moments to reflect on how God might be speaking to you. I just want to ask um, are there things that you know that God's saying the season for that's past? Maybe he's saying it's time for you to step, take a step into maturity. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I processed everything through the screen of my selfishness. But when I became a grown-up, I put away childish things. Are there things that the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, there's no more fruit there. Are there ways that you need to know that Jesus is a prophet and he wants to speak to the true heart of things in your life? That he's a priest, he wants to mediate forgiveness and mercy. He's a king and you need direction. What ways 
Do you need to say Hosanna to him today? Deliver me, rescue me, guide me, save me, show me. He is longing to to do those things in our midst this morning. Let me pray for you, and then I'm going to give a few moments of silence. And in that silence, I ask you just to speak honestly to God in your heart and say, how would you have me respond? What are you saying to me specifically this morning? And then we'll have uh, people available throughout the end of our service and afterwards that will be up here available to pray with you. Uh, But after we have a moment or two of silence, I'm going to invite us to the communion table to receive this meal. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you don't do things as as we might expect. And I thank you that you are a God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But your mercy is new every morning. And I just want to pray. I don't know specifically, but I just I keep feeling that there are people that are carrying an immense weight this pattern of going back to places that they know don't bear fruit, I pray that those, those weights would be released into your hands and that a new way would open up that they could walk in, that we could walk in. I pray for your freedom to come this morning in the lives of your church as we prepare to remember this Holy Week together. I pray you would speak specifically by the Spirit in the ways we're meant to respond. We thank you, we worship you, we say Hosanna in the highest. Save us, Lord. We, we, we sing, we, we speak, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take a few moments of silence to pray and I'll come and lead us to communion in just a moment.